This is the Adult Explore the Bible Weekly Leader Training Podcast. This podcast is designed to help teachers prepare to lead a Bible study group using LifeWay's Explore the Bible adult resources. Each week, we review the Bible passage for that week's study, examine some questions teachers may face, and give some teaching tips along the way. During the winter of 2022 and 2023, we're studying the first 11 chapters of John. I'm Dwayne McCrary, your host, and today I'm being joined once again by Bob Bunn. Bob was with us several weeks ago, so Bob, thank you for being back with us as we look at session 11. Glad to be here. Uh, session 11 looks at John chapter 9, verses 24 through 38. Um, we've divided this section of, or this passage into three sections. I can see, you can't see is a question mark, and then I can really see. That first one, I can see, looks at verses 24 through 25 of John 9. Uh, after being healed, a formerly blind man was brought a second time before the Pharisees. They called on him to glorify God for the healing, rejecting Jesus in the process. The man stated that he did not know the nature of the one who healed him, but he did know that formerly he could not see, but now he could. Main point for us is that believers must examine their beliefs in light of scripture. The second point, is you can't see as a question mark. And that's from verses 26 to 34 of John 9. In these verses, the Pharisees pressed the formerly blind man who asked them if they were interested in becoming followers of Jesus as well. The Pharisees pointed out that they were disciples of Moses and questioned Jesus' credentials. The man then confronted the Pharisees knowing that they did not know where Jesus came from, yet he was able to provide him sight. He proposed that only someone from God could do such a thing. The Pharisees countered by declaring the formerly blind man as having been born in sin. Then they threw him out of the synagogue. The point for us is that believers can share with others the difference Christ makes in their lives. The third point, I can really see, looks at verses 35 and 38 of John 9. Jesus found the formerly blind man and asked him if he believed in the Son of Man. The man asked for Jesus to identify the Son of Man to him. Jesus identified himself as the Son of Man. For us, we can come to understand that believers can worship Jesus in faith and action. I failed to mention, too, that the man expressed his belief in Jesus, worshiping him in response to Jesus identifying himself as a son of man. So, Bob, we have this term son of man, and the Bible skill encourages us to look at and look for references in John for the son of man. There's 12 references in John's account. How does the usage of this term compared to what we see in other gospel accounts? Uh, actually, the, the term son of man, it, it goes way, it goes much farther back than that. It goes in, it, it's in the Old Testament uh, in several different spots. And it has, in the Old Testament, it has three different general uses. One is just talking about humanity in general, the son of man, kind of like uh, I think about in the Chronicles of Narnia, they refer to sons of Adam and daughters of Eve. That's sort of the same concept is that the son, the son of man or sons of man. So it's just talking about human beings in general. The other one, one of the 
one of the places it shows up most of the time, I'll say most frequently maybe, is is in the book of Ezekiel because God called Ezekiel the son of man on a regular basis throughout the book. And it was just a, that was scholars kind of debate over what he meant by that. But I think the general consensus is that it was God's way of reminding Ezekiel, hey, I'm God and you're not, uh, you know, you're the son of man. Uh, you are, you're being used by me, but never forget that you're still a person. You're still a human and I am, I am other uh, I am, I'm divine. I'm, I'm, I'm so much above what you are. Um, so uh, that's, that's sort of where we go with that. And then the third one is, it has the most application for what we're talking about right now. That, that's in Daniel chapter seven, where Daniel's describing a vision and he talks about the son of man coming and receiving power from the ancient days to rule and reign over the world. And that's a messianic um, prophecy, a messianic statement. And Jesus applied that to himself uh, throughout the Gospels, uh, 12 times in John. Every time it's used in John except once, he's referring to himself as the Son of Man. Uh, the one time he's not doing it uh, is in John chapter 12, where other people are quoting him saying, hey, how can you say that you're the Son of Man? <laughs> so uh, it, every time it's referring to him uh, as being the Son of Man. And it's using it in that, in that Messiah context. Uh, where he's claiming equality with God and being the son of God and being the Messiah sent from God. Um, it's, it's interesting when you think about the other gospels, uh, John, he uses it 12 times, but the other gospels use it a whole lot more. Uh, you know, Matthew uses it 32 times, uh, usually in, in, in passages like chapters 25 through 26 and 27, I think, where he, he's spending a lot of time talking about the last days in the end of the world. Uh, he talks about the Son of Man. Luke uses it 26 times. And Mark, which is a much smaller book than John, it still uses it 14 times. So even though it's smaller, it still uses the term more than John. So it's, it's, not, uh, it's not something that John relies on a whole lot, but it's one that he does sprinkle through his gospel. Um, in general, uh, in the New Testament, the term Son of Man as I was doing some research on this, I came across an article in Holman Illustrated Bible Dictionary uh, on Son of Man. And, and they talk about how in that article, uh, how, how in the New Testament, it breaks down into eschatological sayings, which is what we were talking about in Matthew, about the end of the world. This is what's going to happen in the future. The Son of Man is going to come. He's going to reign. He's going to do this. He's going to do that. The other are the passion sayings where Jesus says, you know, the Son of Man will be delivered up to the hands of sinners and will be crucified. He's talking about the last weeks of his life and pointing toward his crucifixion and his resurrection. And then there's just the present ministry sayings uh, where he just says, the, uh, for instance, the Son of Man came to seek and to save who was the ones who were lost, that kind of thing. With John, as you read through it and see where he uses Son of Man, a lot of times he's using it to, to emphasize both Jesus' deity and his humanity. Which goes a lot, which goes along perfectly with John's purpose of pointing out who Jesus was and and leading people to believe that he is the Son of God. Uh, a lot of times he'll use the word, or at least an image, if not the exact words, of the Son of Man um, descended from the Father, and the Son of Man is going to ascend back to the Father, or the Son of Man is going to be lifted up, or the Son of Man is going to be brought down, or he this up and down kind of imagery. Uh, is, is scattered throughout John. And that's a lot of times when John uses Son of Man. He's using it in connection to that. Now, the, the, the coming down obviously emphasizes Jesus' humanity, while the going back or the ascending 
points to his deity, his divinity. And so again, that's that that fits perfectly into what John's trying to do in his gospel to convince people that Jesus is the Son of God and that by believing in him, um, they can have eternal life, which is what John said he, he was trying to do in the first place. John is very strategic in where he places that title, mm -hmm. Son of Man, and how he uses it uh, in connection with other titles for Jesus. Right. I am the bread, I'm the life, those type of things. So it, it, it's interesting how John pieces that together. Uh, in this passage, John 9, uh, we see this the idea of blindness, a man who was born blind, but he now can see. And then Pharisees who can't see, but they can see. Um, how do we account for the blindness of the Pharisees in this passage? It really is an incredible irony that you see. And this is, this is one of my favorite stories in all of John. Uh, I don't know if it's because uh, of the guy's boldness or his sassiness in the face of the Pharisees' arrogance or, or what it is. But it's just, there's just something about this guy I really, really like. Um, but yeah, you're right. Here's a guy that started out completely blind, couldn't see, didn't, you know, was begging, was and had an encounter with Jesus. And then he, he could, all of a sudden he could see for the first time in his life. Um, and, you know, this is one of those, um, what people have called one of the seven signs from the book of John, the seven primary miracles that, that John uses to hang a lot of his theology on. And we've got a couple of kid items in this, the, in our packs uh, for that, that apply to those seven, those seven signs. One's a poster and one's a handout. So if you're a leader and you have our pack items, you might be able to, to lean into those um, as you teach the lesson. But you have this guy who's, whose life completely changed because of this. And then you got these guys who, who are arrogant and, are, and, and believe that they have all the insight in the world, that they, that they can see things that other people can't see. But spiritually, they're kind of like a blind, they're blind like a mole, just kind of digging tunnels, you know, underground. They're just, they're just clueless about what's going on. And you have this contrast between them. So, you know, what, what blinded them? What, what left them in this kind of condition? I think a couple of things. Uh, first was their own traditions. Um, they were so wrapped up in their interpretations of God and what God expected and what God wanted that they really couldn't see anything else. They were, they were tunnel visioned when it came to that kind of thing. Um, they, part of it was because that's where their authority rested. Uh, their power, they were, they were guys who liked to be in charge. They were guys who liked position and like power and liked the respect and the fear that it brought. Um, and so anything that threatened them, uh, it threatened their authority, that threatened their position, they reacted against. And so they, they embraced this tradition for all it's worth because that's, that's where they derived their identity and that's where they derived their power. It's one of the reasons they didn't like the guy much when he came and stood before them because he challenged them. And they weren't going to abide by anything that was going to challenge or anyone that was going to challenge them. The other thing was they were just blinded by their hatred of Jesus. Um, I just got through saying that they liked their position. They liked the status quo. They liked things the way they were. And no one represented an upheaval of that more than Jesus did. Nothing created, no one created more disequilibrium in their lives than Jesus did. He turned everything upside down. He claimed to be God. He claimed to be Messiah. And honestly, they were losing influence because of him. As people, as people listened to Jesus and they saw the things that Jesus did, they were beginning to wonder, oh, maybe he really is the Messiah. And maybe he really is, there is something to this. 
And they were turning away from the teachings of the Pharisees and Sadducees, and the other religious leaders, and they were turning to Jesus. And they felt, and the, the leaders felt threatened because of that. And so the, even to the point that they eventually crucified him because of it. But those two things, their tradition and their hatred of Jesus, really that's what blinded them. And they couldn't accept anything else. They couldn't see past their own noses when it came to things like that uh, because they were so ingrained and so absorbed in, in those two things. Uh, and honestly, we can, we can fall into the same trap. Uh, we can get so wrapped up in our legalistic way of doing things and our judgmental attitudes sometimes that, that we lose sight of what really matters. And, you know, sometimes we can, we can forget what's really important, or in some cases we can let our emotions get the best of us. It may not be anger and hatred, but it could be fear or it could be distrust or it could be, um, you know, any, any kind of a negative emotion like that can distract us from who God has called us to be and what God has called us to do. And so, you know, when we do that, we become just as blind as they are. So we have to, we have to be careful about that in our own lives. In the group plans, both in the leader guide and in the daily discipleship guide, we're encouraged to look at a particular statement. It's actually two sentences. It's uh, on page 105. These statements are on page 105 in the personal study guide at the end of the comments about verses 30 through 34. And they're on page 98 uh, of the daily discipleship guide, which at the end of the day three daily expiration. It's the last two sentences in the day three. Now, one thing I'll side note here to say is that if you're using the daily discipleship guide or the personal study guide, you're going to see the same content uh, in different ways. We've organized it so that you have a different experience, a different kind of learning experience, but we started with the same content and, and work from there. But the statements that you're going to find is this: these two sentences. People may debate theological points, but they cannot deny the change Jesus works in us. The most effective apologetic may not lie in doctrinal arguments, but in the witness of a transformed life. And what we're encouraged to do is to highlight those two sentences and then lead the group to discuss that particular those, you know, ramifications of those two statements. Do they agree, disagree? And then move into a question, a discussion time about what makes a person's changed life a powerful means for sharing about Jesus. So, Bob, with that in mind, what lessons can we draw from this passage that will help us when we encounter a skeptic or an antagonist like what we have in this passage? What you just said kind of reminds me of something that I don't know, I don't know where I picked it up, but it's sort of a mantra that I've, I've adopted for my life is, is a person with an experience is never at the mercy of someone with an argument. Uh, <laughs> you know, people may argue, skeptics and, and critics and, and whoever, uh, antagonists, opponents, they may argue their point. They may, uh, they may be sincere in their arguments. But the truth is that because of what we've experienced, we know that to be true. Uh, we know that Jesus' ministry to be real. We know that his, the fact that he is the Son of God, that he is the Messiah. Is, is, is genuine, is valid because of, of because what he's done for us. Uh, so that's one of the things you learn is that from the passages, lean into the experience, uh, not so much the argument. Uh, <laughs> and don't be, don't be cowered by the arguments. The second thing goes along with that as well is that, is that because we had this experience, because we know it's true, we can have the confidence to share it with other people. Uh, that maybe that's what I really like about this guy is that he was so bold. He was able to stand up. He he was 
he wasn't the smartest guy, I don't think. Uh, he was he'd been a, a beggar for thirty something years, uh, blind for thirty something years, and you know he was he was facing this crowd who had all the education, who had all the privilege, who had all the titles behind their names. Um, you know they were the theologians, they were the they were the experts, but but he said you know. I don't know a lot, but here's what I do know. <laughs> I was blind, but now I can see. And it was as simple as that. And because he had that experience, he was able to share it confidently. And I think we need to stop, take a step back sometimes and, and think, yeah, I can, I, can, I can share what I know. I can share my story. And if, if somebody accepts it, that's great. If, they, if they're skeptical and they don't, then that's okay. We're not responsible for them changing their lives or transforming their hearts. That's God's business. But it is our responsibility to share our story. And, you know, sharing our story should be, you know, in, in some ways it should be as easy as falling off a log. But we, we make it much more complicated than it has to be sometimes, either because of fear or because of doubt or because of or whatever other kind of emotions might be eating at us. One of the things under apply the text, um, the questions that are included in there, the second one is always geared towards the individual. If you're looking in the personal study guide, in the daily discipleship guide, that application that's for the individuals at the end of the session. But that particular application point makes this statement. It's not everyone has a dramatic story to tell about how they met Jesus. And then it asks, how was your life changed because of Jesus? And who do you think might benefit from hearing about how you came to be a follower of Jesus? And then it says, share with them. Mm -hmm. uh, those of you who've been listening to the podcast know it's when we were talking about session five, which was uh, the lesson for New Year's Day, January 1. One of the application points was to identify the name of somebody who's not a believer and, and start praying for them, praying for the opportunity for, to share the gospel with them. Well, now this session, which is session 11, uh, five weeks later, six weeks later, excuse me, gives us the opportunity to put into practice what we've been praying for, for six weeks. So, uh, that's an important piece for us to keep in mind too. And we think about, you know, this, this lesson, even though it stands alone, there is some connection with previous lessons that we've had. So, yeah, I think one other thing that we can we can kind of see from this guy's example is I, I like the way he just kind of he stayed calm. He didn't get flustered. He didn't get frustrated. He didn't get intimidated. You know, they called his parents in and grilled them, interrogated them, and they they kind of caved to the pressure <laughs> to the to the intimidation. But this guy never really did. He ended up getting kicked out of the synagogue because of it. But it, it, you know, he he didn't. He just kind of said, "Yeah, this is who I am. This is where I've been," and. and and this is what I've experienced. And there's something about that that I think we can transfer to our experience today. I, I think the world is really turned off mostly by Christians who are arrogant, who are condescending, who who uh, who are dogmatic, maybe too dogmatic <laughs> in some ways. This guy wasn't like that. He was confident. He was calm. And he was respectful for the most part. <laughs> he, he did kind of gig him a little bit from time to time, but basically he kind of kept on, on level footing and he was completely honest. And, you know, he didn't win a whole lot of friends in that particular setting because of it, because of, of how they were and who they were. But I think it's a good reminder to us, the old saying that you, you draw more flies with honey than vinegar. And I don't 
know exactly why you want to draw flies, but if you did, uh, <laughs> if you did, you could do it better with honey. And so, you know, I think as believers, we need to take a step back and just maintain that calm spirit, that confident spirit, be respectful, listen, discuss instead of argue. And I think we'll get a better hearing for our story in the long run because of that. And it'd probably be a lot less awkward for us too. It'd be a lot more, a lot, a lot less uncomfortable. Are there, are there any other key thoughts or ideas you would share about this particular passage in John? I think just, just uh, do what's right despite of the situation or in spite of the situation. This guy, he didn't know much, but what he knew is what he, is what he went with. And, and he was, he stood up for what was right. And, and Jesus, I like the way Jesus circles back around at the end of the passage and comes back to him and, and says, you know, hey, do you believe in the Son of Man? He says, well, who is he? He says, yeah, here I am. And the guy just immediately, uh, just immediately worships Jesus because of it. Uh, he, he, the, more you, the more you try to do what God wants you to do, the more you get to see him and the more you experience him. You may not be, as a leader even, uh, you may not be at the top of your game yet spiritually, but if you do the little things each day and you're faithful in those little things, then over time, you're going to reach the potential that God has for you. And I think that's something important for us to remember. Just keep being faithful, uh, even, in, even in weird situations, uh, because that's, that's when you really get to meet God in a, in a, in a, in a genuine way. Bob, thank you for sharing with us again this week. Let me encourage our folks who are listening to us to take a look at the blog post found on goexplorethebible.com forward slash blog. Every Thursday, a new post is added, and these posts will help you better understand the Explore the Bible resources and the ideas behind the resources. That's goexplorethebible.com forward slash blog. Thank you for listening to us today. We hope you'll encourage other teachers to tune in next week. We'll be looking at session 12. Mike Livingston will be with us one more time during this quarter. We'll be looking at John chapter 10. And the main idea is that Jesus is the good shepherd who takes care of his sheep. Mm -hmm.